Folks, this is Jack Smirka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October 16th, 2014, and this is episode 1446 of the Survival Podcast. I got a good one for you today. Glenn Tate, author of the 299 Days book series, is coming back on the air with us. He'll be with us in just a moment. Uh, when he does, he'll be telling you about uh, how 299 Days was created right out of the TSP community and a lot of stuff that we haven't really talked about before, little details into this, overall view of the world, where we're at today with it, and some other cool things. But the big news is 299 Days will soon be available for you on audiobook. Uh, and you can learn more about that in just a minute. Before we do that, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, when I am feeling a little under the weather or a little achy or a little bit of pain or like recently up in uh, Perma Ethos, I was walking in the dark and some woofers planted a jack trap. They put these two big, huge stones under a tree and I didn't know they were there. And I landed on them and I scraped my wrist really bad. And what did I use? I used a comfrey salve. And it's uh, only been a few days. It was a pretty deep beef scrape and it's almost gone. Uh, herbs are wonderful. And sometimes I'm not sure exactly what would be the best thing to try. I call Western Botanicals. There's real people that really care about me there. They care about you too, and they help me figure out what I need to try. And uh, they just make some of the best stuff. And if it's herbal, and if it exists in America, they've got it at Western Botanicals. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. And remember, they have their premium discount membership, which gives you 25% off all items. They sell that for... Uh, 50 bucks a year, which really is a good deal if you use a lot of verbals like we do, but you get it for free if you're a member of the support brigade. So check that out too in the MSB. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith Snow with Harvest Eating. He's got some awesome cool stuff, man. Uh, I just got to try his curry chicken seasoning. Up at Perma Ethos, I, Jack Spirico, cooked the chicken on the grill, along with help from the nicest guy in the world, Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom. We cooked all the chicken, and uh, by the time I you know, got the grill cleaned up and got into where everybody was eating, they ate all the curried chicken. But Kevin Keegan had actually made uh, the wings by deep-frying the whole wings, not in batter anything, just seasoning them up and deep-frying them. They were amazing. And uh, I, I did manage to find a few of the wings that were left from the uh, the curried seasoning. Even people that generally said they don't like curry really dug that seasoning. So check out his new seasonings. He's got a prime rib seasoning and some other new cool stuff I'm looking forward to trying as well. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Remember, he also has videos and a cool podcast. Uh, he's just a great, great guy, member of our expert council. Can't say enough good things about everything I've learned from Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. And he does do a discount. For members of the MSB, and if that means if you're an MSB member, get your discounts when you buy from Harvest Eating and Western Botanicals and all the other great discounts. And if you're not, join so you can get those discounts. The membership pays for itself. Support the show at about two dimes an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a discount. If you email me before, not after you join, but before... Service discount in the subject line. Send that email to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Unless I'm on the road, if you don't hear back in 48 hours, this spam monster ate your email. 
try again. Get in touch with me. Let me know. I will make sure you get the discount code because I do want your business. But I also want to thank you for your service to our nation, either at home and or abroad. Uh, next up, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1446. I got a funny story for you when I get to my take on this. But uh, the first story today that we have is Texas Tech and the Blarney Stone. You know, you would think you would hear something like, oh, I don't know, Notre Dame and the Blarney Stone, not Texas Tech. But there's a reason for the Texas Tech there. The next one is Morea, thou shalt, oh no, I'm sorry, Morea, you shall not pass. Sounds like... King Arthur and the knights that used to say knee or something like that, for those that know what that's from. Uh, but it's not. Anyway, you can uh, take, a, take a look at the Morea. You shall not pass one for yourself at TSP Wiki. I'm going to read Texas Tech and the Blarney Stone, mainly because I have a funny story that has nothing to do with history to tell you about after I give you Alex's take. So Alex Shrugs got these together for us, like always, at the TSP Wiki, at tspwiki.com. This year, the Blarney Stone is raised up 13 stories and set into battlements of the Blarney Castle in Ireland, just outside of Cork. It is the castle of King Cormac McCarthy of Munster. The tradition is that if you lean out backwards over the battlements, cross the void, and kiss the stone, you'll be granted the gift of gab. Unfortunately, a few people will plunge to their deaths in attempt, so kissing the Blarney Stone will be rare, a rare event until handholds and a metal grating are installed. Several legends surround the stone, most of which sound like the worst, sound the worst like Blarney. The word Blarney is a good example. Legend has it that from Blarney Castle to Queen Elizabeth I contains a letter from letters from Blarney Castle to Queen Elizabeth I contains so many excuses and pretty words saying nothing the Queen shouted. What Blarney, thus coining the word, is it true? No idea, but it sounds good. My take by Alex Shrugged. One of my sons went to Texas Tech University, but he never mentioned that a piece of the Blarney Stone sits on a pedestal in front of the Electrical Engineering Building today. The story goes that a petroleum engineering that petroleum engineering students found the stone during a field trip and determined it was the piece of the famous Blarney Stone missing since 1659. The credulous engineering staff had it mounted on a pedestal and unveiled their little monument on St. Patrick's Day 1939, where it remains to this day. Engineering students will kiss the stone in order to grant themselves elegant speech. I have never met an engineer who has kissed the stone. If you are an engineer who has kissed the piece of the Blarney Stone at Texas Tech, love to hear from you in the comments today. Now, my take, nothing to do with history, nothing really to do with this, only that Blarney Stone comes into it. Um, so, one day, uh, a buddy of mine named Brad that I served in the Army with are at a bar, and a uh, country bar, and we're drinking beer and talking to people and hanging out, and the song that you're about to hear comes on. Just, I'm going to play you 15 seconds of this song. And at that point, my buddy turns to me and he goes, you know, there's something that's bothered me about this song for a long time and I just can't figure it out. I said, dude, what? what?" He goes, I thought there was only one. I said, one what? He goes, Blarney Stone, like in Ireland. I said, what the hell does that have to do with this song? He goes, it says it must be written on a Blarney Stone, so that must mean there's more than one. I'm like, no, you dimwit, it's a block of stone. Yep. Yeah. That's what he thought. 
I don't know, maybe it's not that funny to you guys, but to me it was pretty funny, maybe because I've known the guy for so many years. I guess it all is in how you hear things. And Did anybody ever hear the Queen say Blarney or not? Who knows, maybe she said something that sounded like Blarney. Somebody made it into that, next thing you know, the stone is the Blarney stone. Uh, but, you know, remember we do study history to learn from it, but sometimes it's good just to be a little bit entertained. And with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And uh, with that, I want to welcome back to the show, Glenn Tate. Hey, Glenn, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Thank you so much. Always fun being here, always. Now, a huge percentage of this audience knows exactly who you are, both as a forum moderator and as the author of the 299 Days series. But we have new people coming in all the time, so for folks that maybe have no idea who you are at all, can you tell people who you are, a little bit about your background, the elevator version, and uh, how you ended up being an author of all these awesome books? Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, Heavy G on the forum, and um, I am uh, Glenn Tate is a is a pen name, fake. Uh, I have a job that allows me to observe government. I'll put it that way, and uh, that's why I keep the pen name on um, because you know employers probably wouldn't dig that I'm on a show like yours. You know, total insurrectionist. You know, terrible thing that you are, right? <laughs> Telling people to grow gardens and stuff, you're a threat to humanity. So, um, but no, I have professional reasons to keep that on the down low. Um, and so, um, regular guy, um, suburban schlub, um, you know, out of shape, lost all my country boy skills that I used to have, started listening to this crazy podcaster um, when you had, I think, 100 downloads, not 100,000, you know, 100, I think it was 116, I was, no, I was on the forum, I was number 116, I remember that, and, um, and I started listening to you, and I thought, man, this guy makes sense, he's not crazy, um, and, and this is really rational, and it our society super fragile and he's describing things people can do to to not you know be dependent and started listening got on the forum and learned a bunch of stuff had a crazy idea to write a book that then turned into 10 called you one time and it's a funny story you've told it before but uh left you a voicemail saying hey if i write a book can i come on the show and you're like well yeah i mean if you write a book i mean a lot of people call me and say they're going to do stuff and they don't so i mean if you do yeah and that was about two years ago um now all 10 books are out audiobooks are coming out it's been kind of a big deal um tens of thousands of books much to my surprise and it's become a thing and uh, TSP and a bunch of moderators are woven into the entire story, books one through ten. And uh, so it's kind of a community TSP thing. I mean, this isn't just me like going off and doing something. Um, uh, there's there's a TSP connection to it. And you're mentioned, I think, four or five times in the book. So um, that's probably why it's you know such a success, Jack. That's probably why it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's the case, but. I'll take the credit, I guess, if you want to dish it out. But, I mean, the TSP community did have a, a big role in the book and really a big part of your decision to do it. I mean, there was a lot of encouragement from the community, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, mods uh, and you, I mean, I was joking, but I mean, that is pretty much what happened with that voicemail. That you said. Well, that's exactly what I said. I said, go write your book and get back with me. Yeah, but that's kind of an encouragement. I mean, the ability to, um, you know, talk to talk to all your listeners. Um I learned about modern survival, which is what you're calling it, which you know is what I call it, the rational stuff, the, the no conspiracy theories, no freaking out, no going into debt, um, the normal rational stuff. Um, I learned the mindset, you know, what I, what I just mentioned, and then a lot of skills. I started learning about all the things on the forum. I think the forum is, uh, and your show, I mean, 
between the two of them are, are it's the best way I've called it in the past PhD level course on this and it's for free and so I learned tons and tons of stuff and then um, you know I mean I looked at you you're this guy driving around in this Jetta um, yelling at people and and now you have this gigantic podcast and so I thought you know it's possible to do these things to think outside the box which is a cliche I hate but it works pretty well here so that was that was you know um, a lot of the community and then of course there's a ton of moderators who are characters in the books you know and and I can go into that too but um, yeah that was the main thing uh, encouragement and skills and just it's just a community thing so what particular principles that come out of the the TSP community not just so much my podcast but the community as a whole did you weave into this what makes the storyline of 299 days let's say more believable uh, then, um, well, I won't name any names, but there's some, like, ridiculous uh, prepper fiction out there. Just over-the-top, ridiculous prepper fiction. Your stuff's very much based on reality from what you've seen in government and things you've heard government officials say, but you, you also kind of put common-sense principles in there. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, and you, you touched on it. I think the thing that's different about the books and the thing that's different about the TSB community is is the rational prepping. Um, I think the idea of a partial collapse, you know, no no zombies, uh, no meteorite, um, nothing that's absolute and over the top where 99% of the population dies and you got cannibals running around. Um, you know, the scenario super quick version in the in the series is government just collapses, shuts down. There's still some services. The utilities are still on for a very interesting reason. And I don't think there are any other books out there uh, that that have this partial collapse scenario. It's usually the zombies and all that other stuff. And I think that's one of the things that's made this series, you know, pretty popular is that people can relate to the government not working, but kind of sort of working in some place. I mean, and and this is this is an idea I got from you directly from you, and I'll paraphrase it my own way. And that is, the more dramatic something is, the less likely it is to occur. A meteor striking the Earth and killing everything on it is super dramatic and super unlikely to occur today. Um, and the example you've always used is, you know, getting a flat tire on the way to work. Um, not not very dramatic, but far more likely to occur. Well, you get everything in between, um, and that's that's where the the story takes place. Um, another thing, it goes without saying to this audience, but I, you know, for new people, they need to hear this. I think. There's no racism or conspiracy theory stuff in, in in what I do or what you do, and what I call kind of the the oath keepers approach, which is um, oath keepers are good. We're not a bunch of bloodthirsty people who want to go and start shooting people. Um, we think that there are decent people in uniform um, who are going to follow their oaths and are going to basically not participate in bad things. They're not going to start throwing grenades in conference rooms and doing stuff like that, you know, because you don't need to. You can you can effectively carry out your oath and not do bad things by simply not showing up for work. And I think that's that's pretty important. And another thing is. Um, you know, if times get tough, or even if they don't, um, a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the books and that you talk about makes perfect sense if nothing bad ever happens, and that's another important thing. So that's a lot of the principles from TSP that that are woven into the into the storyline. Very, very cool. And you mentioned there are moderators that are built into the book as actual characters. Which which moderators <laughs> did you uh, did you? Uh, craft into characters. Holy smokes, it's a long list, and some of these people, I'm just going to give their, their form names, because some of them, their real names, they, they don't want out for a variety of reasons. One of the bigger characters is Dan Morgan, who's Berserker Prime. 
Um, he's a retired Air Force uh, Security Forces guy. He has kind of a big role. Um, there's a character named Don Watson, who's Doc Watmo, uh, a ham radio operator. Kohut shows up, and I won't give you his real name uh, in the book. Um, a really cool character is the Wilderness. Um, he's Mr. Shipley. That's his character name. Uh, that was really, really cool to do because he's a super interesting guy, and he, he made, I think, the story even more interesting. Mr. Bill shows up. I won't tell you his real name um, because he doesn't let that out, but he his his character and his real name show up in the book. Truick shows up. Of course, one of the major characters is Wes, uh, and that's Patriot X Machina. I think I'm saying that right. Um, oh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Uh, Mrs. Roth is a character, and she has a very rare disease, and uh, one of the moderators you know, shares that condition. Uh, there's Roswell, who, you know, I'm super creative, so his character's name is General Roswell. You can see how creative I am, right? And then, uh, yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Hammond um, is a kind of a big character in the book, and he's Goat Dog, a uh, former moderator. So you can see I took a lot of personalities and a few names when it was maybe just more of a generic character, and I just needed a cool name and uh, put it in there. But um, a lot of these people and conversations I had with these people and things I learned from these people directly went into into the storyline very very cool man and what do you think has because you talked about the difference in in the story uh because of your view in the government do you think there's anything from having all these contacts with the show and the communities around the show the forum zello podcast itself it's also brought more believability to the book, other than just you've based it on people. Yeah, um, TSP and all the channels you mentioned, basically, it, it attracts rational people who are concerned about the way things are going. And so you've got this big collection of rational people, and you start talking to them and listening to them via the forum, and you get all kinds of ideas, and you get this reality check, right? And I think that if, and this happens periodically, you know, as a moderator, I know that this happens periodically. Somebody will come on and they'll, you know, say, you know, we got to kill people, or we get, you know, or like, I don't know, left handed Albanians are taken over, and we got, you know, just crazy stuff. And that gets kind of tamped down pretty quickly. And so that's what I mean by reality checks. If I surrounded myself, with people who had just bizarre uh, world views and theories, um, I'd probably pick them up too. But I surrounded myself with really rational people, and so there's that. I think I think that's the best explanation for it. Very very cool. And um, I mean, can you give people? I guess we really haven't explained for those that haven't read the books yet. Um, what is the storyline? Yeah. What is what is 299 days about? Great question, and I, I try to be really brief. It's 3,800 pages covering 10 books, and so it is kind of hard to be brief. Um, as I mentioned, regular guy, schlub, um, realizes you know things are fragile, realizes he needs to prepare a lot of resistance um, from his wife, um, based on a true story, and uh, um, gets ready, um, meets up with a, a team of guys, all regular guys, none of this mall ninja stuff, none of this wannabe pretend stuff. I mean, these are regular guys, and they're just like they're described in the book. People can relate to that, too. You know, I don't know any, like, SEALs, right? I don't hang out with SEALs, and so there are no SEALs in the book because I don't know any. Um, and uh, there's a collapse, partial collapse mentioned earlier, and then 
there's a community that's formed up. Um, there's another TSP um, principle that's involved, you know, this idea that it takes a community to do these things and you can't be a lone wolf. So the community forms up. Um, there's, there's resistance to tyranny. There's an active, quite honestly, military component to it, uh, kind of a guerrilla thing. And um, the good guys win. I know, I know, I let it cat out of the bag, but the first chapter lets the cat out of that bag. <laughs> And uh, then there's a, a restoration, uh, a rebuilding, and it's not like a 20-year story. It's like here are the first stages of it. So uh, that's 10 books. Um, I tried to break it down but uh, be summarized, uh, but there you go. That's it. Well, can you tell me why it's called 299 Days? Yeah, great, great thing. Um, there's a, my theory is, is that this collapse and, and getting things basically back into some semblance of normalcy, um, not normalcy, get back into some kind of functioning uh, society, it will not take a super long time. I could be wrong about that, by the way, but that's my theory. And so 299 days comes from the period of time from the date of the collapse, which is a kind of spectacular series of events on May 1st, May Day, um, interestingly, um, if you're not a fan of communism, and I'm not a fan of communism, um, and then 299 days to the uh, inauguration of the new governor of the new state of Washington. This all takes place in my state, which is Washington State, but I mean, all the things I talk about translate to wherever you live. It's not you know too specific geographically. And so it's that 299-day period, and it's all the changes that occur, all the amazing things that happen in this relatively short period of time. Another reason 299 days is a is an important um, thing in the title is that it's hopeful. Um, this isn't 299 years of darkness, right? It's not that kind of thing. Um, so that's where the the name comes from. And, and numbers are easy to remember. That was another factor. Let me be honest. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, it might have might have helped that you could get a domain, a short domain name too. <laughs> 299days.com. There's not a lot of .coms left with, you know, five to seven characters in it. <laughs> Unless you want to put 1234.com after it, <laughs> Mr. Harris. Um, and, you know, I guess people that, that, again, that aren't familiar with you, even if they're familiar with the books, one thing they might find is interesting is, like, okay, the whole thing after the collapse, you have to invent that. Yeah, because it, that hasn't happened yet, and you're surmising most likely what it might be like, and taking some literary license so that you know readers don't go to sleep. But right up into that point, this is actually highly autobiographical, isn't it? Yeah, and that was actually a bit of a mistake. Now I'm glad it turned out that way. And here's what I mean by that: I, <laughs> I sat down to write this. This is the Easter Bunny story. That's how this came about. The Easter Bunny. Um, I again had a resistant wife, and I had to explain to her how all this stuff would show up if we were bugging in. And the idea I came up with was the Easter Bunny. I was going to say, listen, the Easter Bunny dropped it off. That was a way of not, you know, saying I'm right and you're wrong, and just kind of getting on with what needs to be done. So I started writing the bullet points down for this Easter Bunny speech I would give, and it became page or two and then it became a chapter and then it became more and so I started writing this thing and uh, I, I had no idea it would ever go anywhere it was like I couldn't stop sort of thing and it just kept growing and growing and so I wasn't like making stuff up I wasn't trying to be creative I was just writing down what I know which is me and my friends and, and things I see at work and so um, 
that's why there's there's no BS in this, and it seems really real. People over and over again, they say, wow, this seems really real. And I go, yeah, it is. Classic example of that. A mutual friend of ours is showing up at, at the real cabin, and in, in the story I talk about Pow, the real six-foot Korean gunfighter who sells insurance for real. People find that amazing. He has a white Hummer in the book. And so we're driving up to the cabin, and this guy goes, oh, my God, that's – Powell's White Hummer. He really has a White Hummer. I'm like, yeah, I'm not creative enough to make stuff up. I'm just, it's, I mean, it's fiction in the sense of it happens in the future, but it's not fiction in the sense of like comic book and, and just made up stuff. So it's incredibly biographical. And I say it, it was a bit of a mistake. I put some details in there that, you know, I really would rather not have tens of thousands of people reading. I mean, I'm okay with it, obviously, but if I, if I were to do it over again, I might try to do it differently. But then again, I probably wouldn't, and the reason is it wouldn't be real. Um, I would start making up stuff about my friends who are SEALs who don't exist, right? And then it would just not be the same way. So the realism is overpowering in this because it's actually real. I, I think and about 97% of book one is true and, and that blows people away but um, it really is yeah and I I'll tell you that it was real enough that, that some of the interactions from your youth with a particular male character in the book that were not quite um, you know typical uh, let's say leave it to beaver interactions uh, was real enough that when my wife uh, read it she referred to him as that bastard yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> And she yeah, was actually kind of what I was getting at, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was actually kind of angry about it, you know. And uh, yeah. it was uh, it was it was pretty interesting. Uh, and that's to, an important thing. I mean, that whole thing, and and this is the the abusive father thing, um, is important. I'm not just like you know you know like Phil, you know whatever that show is on TV. I'm sorry, whatever Doctor Phil, where I'm like talking about feelings. You need to understand that aspect to understand why I'm like I am. Why do I run out, sometimes literally run into like the street and help people who are being bullied? What what motive and that's kind of rare. What motivates somebody to do that? Well, that um, past experience does. And so you need to understand that, to understand why the main character in the book, who's me, um, does some kind of crazy stuff, but it actually makes sense when you have a full story like that. Yeah, and I mean, like one of the other things that's really realistic in there was kind of your story about, and being a lot like mine too, where you get wrapped up in corporate America and you lose your roots because you you knew better, right? You, you should have never been an out of shape, khaki panted, exactly. you know, uh, guy with no guns in his possession and, and a schlub, right? And, and you kind of find your way back at some yeah. point. Yeah, and that is another thing, another bit of realism that a lot of people can relate to because a good chunk of the people listening to this show and on the forums have had that same experience because most of us don't grow up, you know, with uh, like in a homesteading family. I mean, I guess it happens, but it's not common. A lot of us have country roots, did the suburban thing, the whole corporate America thing, and now we're, we're realizing the fragility of all of this and we're back to, you know, cutting wood and figuring out, you know, how to skin a deer and that kind of stuff. A lot of people can relate to it. The fact that it was real and I describe it so realistically, um, people appreciate that and, and they can relate to it and that has been a big deal. Definitely. Um, and now you've got audiobooks coming out. Yeah, this is... Amazing, and I just got a little shot of goosebump when uh, when you said that because this is so amazing. We uh, have, I think, 
I don't know, personally biased, but um, one of the best narrators, New York Times best-selling narrator named Kevin Pierce, um, who really, really wanted to do this book series, and I'm really glad he did. He did a magnificent job. Um, it's been up on Audible, and for those who aren't familiar, Audible is kind of the Netflix of audiobooks, and they're integrated with Amazon, um, and they're the big deal that, you know, the iTunes, basically, of uh, audiobooks, and you can get these on iTunes, by the way, too. They all come out October 26, 2014, which is the 299th day of the year. I thought that was clever. It wasn't my idea. I'm supposed to take credit for stuff that I didn't do, but I didn't do that. And uh, um, They're all going to come out, all 10 of them. Um, I've been proofing them as they've gone along. I'm listening to book 10 right now. and I know it's going to sound really self-serving, but I don't even care. Nobody really knows who I am. Um, so, you know, they can get mad at Glenn Tate, but they don't know who Glenn Tate is, so I'll sound obnoxious for a moment. These audiobooks are spectacular. And here's an amazing thing I never thought I'd be able to say. Okay, book one in particular, my life, right? Not only did I write this, I lived it. Nobody knows book one on the entire planet better than me. Well, here's the crazy thing. I listen to these audiobooks, and I listen to Kevin Pierce, the way he does his voice inflection, the way he does all of it. And I got more out of my own life story hearing... Kevin Pierce read it than I did living it or writing it. And I know that's going to sound super weird, and I can't, you can't appreciate it until it happens to you, but it, that was really profound. And there have been a couple times where the goosebumps come back and, and all kinds of things happen. Sometimes when I'm listening to it, when I'm driving, I just, a couple times now, I've just stopped the truck and just sat there and been like, wow, this is, this is pretty heavy or, or funny. Um, there's funny parts too. So, um, it, it's been amazing. We, Audible has been fantastic. Um, they let us have two and a half months of pre-sales so since about August. This has been available. You can pre-order it now. You know, before October 26th, um, and that's really rare for them to to launch ten books at once. Uh, we were in the uh, Audible fall uh, newsletter where they have basically staff picks. They say, hey, here's here's an audiobook series or audiobook that we think is pretty cool and we're really interested in. Um, I was on the same page as Stephen King, which is kind of a trip. Um, and so there was that. And then um, uh, they've been really, really helpful. Um, if, you've, if you've got the Kindle version, I didn't know this. See, here's a funny thing. We talked about this in our first interview, and the publisher called me and said, I'm not supposed to talk about this anymore, but I'm going to anyway because I don't care. Our, <laughs> our first interview, you were talking to me, and I was like, yeah, this is crazy, Jack. I, I, I don't even know how to write books. You know, because I'm not, I, it's not what I do for a living. I just wrote down what happened. And um, now, since time has gone on, we've seen that, you know, a lot of people agree that it's it's well done, I guess. But I said, I don't even know how to write stuff. I mean, I, you know, I don't even read books. I, I don't listen to audio books. And that's when the publisher called and said, let's let's not go on Jack Spierko's show and say you don't know how to write. And he kind of had a point. There, I just did it again. I don't even care. But um, <laughs> the point of all that is, is that... Um, is that there's no um, uh, I, I didn't know things about audiobooks like if you have the Kindle version, it's called WhisperSync and it's like a buck ninety nine and you can upgrade from your Kindle to the audio thing. So if you've already read these on Kindle, it's oh, wow. relative. Yeah, it's very cool. It's relatively inexpensive to do those little dollar ninety nine upgrades, and then you've got the audiobook. And this is going to sound weird, but it's true. If you've read them. Um, and then you listen to the audio version, you're going to get a lot more out of the whole thing than you did reading it. And you have to actually listen to the audiobooks to appreciate what I'm saying. So I, I encourage you to try it um, because it's pretty cool. So, yeah, that's a great way to, to get the, the audio version. 
and, and after hearing that, now your books are like the only books I've purchased on purpose in hard copy in the last how long? I don't know. <laughs> I buy everything on on electronic copy anymore. Yeah, because you gave me a, a set. Uh, my, and I have one with your actual name in the signature. Uh, you're the only guy, by the way, if I may interrupt, you're the only guy on the planet who has a signed book where I signed it with my real name. And that was my way of saying, you encourage me, uh, you know, the community, it was like a thing to do. But sorry to interrupt. No, no. Um, so once I had those, I thought, well, I got to I got to complete the stack <laughs> right now. So good. Uh, <laughs> So now if I want the audios, I got to pay full price like a like a dumbass, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, no. There's a thing if you uh, if you if you're not an Audible subscriber and you sign up for a year subscription, I think it's 150 bucks off the top of my head, and you get like 12 books for your subscription. You, oh, okay. If it's your first book, if 299 days is your first book, uh, you get the first book free. I mean, you're you're getting the year long subscription. It's a great way to get all the books i mean there's like 10 in the series and you got 12 this year whatever it is so um it's a it's a great thing to subscribe and it costs a lot less um to listen to the books if you subscribe plus there's tons of cool stuff on audible uh, audible that's funny see i'm so out of the literary publishing like world i don't even know what it's called it's audible there you go that's a correct <laughs> name but um and then i noticed that on Amazon right now, you can pre-order them because they're not actually available yet. But when I noticed that, it said that it, it was zero dollars. Yes. What's that about, dude? What's that about? Um, they don't count pre-sales until the release date because Audible or Amazon doesn't charge your credit card until the release date. So zero dollars oh. have flown in. So I actually don't know how many pre pre-sales there have been i know i can look it up but that's like the you know the athlete that keeps track of stats and quits playing and quits thinking about it as the fun of the game i'm, I'm trying not to keep track of those number things um, i only have a loose knowledge of like how many copies have sold because in a lot of ways it doesn't matter i mean to me that selling the copies is getting the message out and and i'll be honest i'm to my great surprise i'm actually making some money on this which kind of blows me away i'm not going to say like that's no big deal i'm not giving it all away to charity or something i'm not going to lie uh, yeah I, I guess you wouldn't and but you had you mentioned that reluctant spouse i imagine um royalty payments uh make a reluctant spouse a little more receptive of the spouse yeah that is a super interesting topic um yeah, that was. You know, that's actually why. Oh, here's another fun aspect. Uh, I spent two and a half years writing ten books and never told my wife. Did it all in secret. Yeah, that's kind of hard to pull <laughs> off, by the way. Uh, it's really hard to pull off, you know, with a full time job and stuff like that. Um, and so when they were accepted for public, hold on, hold on. Yeah, you do. You did have a government job while you were doing this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. So, not and it's about not it. like you government guys work that hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, and I know I'm eight hundred pages, and um, yeah. so when when they were accepted for publication um by the way first publisher i sent them to said yeah how about a 10 book deal i was like are you are you kidding me are you on crack i mean have you read these <laughs> things no i'm just kidding but um that that was really interesting so i said oh geez uh, there's gonna be a 1099 um and uh there's gonna actually be some income here and uh i mean i can you know hide a couple hundred bucks but i mean you know wow this thing could really take off so that's why i had to have that really interesting conversation where uh, it's so funny it's great 
we're uh, on vacation. We're at this nice, we're at this beautiful river. It's really calm, and she has no idea what's going on. She has no idea I'm a prepper. She has no idea about tons of stuff. And uh, I said, so, baby, guess what? <laughs> it's seriously what I said. And I go, um, you know, I, I heard that the odds of getting a book published, you know, like first time out, it's like one in a thousand. She looks at me, and she goes, did you do that? And I go, no, baby, I got, I got 10 published. <laughs> and she goes, oh, great. She's really excited. And she thinks it's probably about like bird watching or like, you know, like my lawyering, yeah, right? something books that, or something, textbooks. And you could get around the textbook scam and make students pay <laughs> like, you know, $500 for your book because the class requires it or whatever. She's thinking it's some kind of thing that's accepted by society. She goes, what's it about? And I go, oh, yeah. It's, and I was trying to be positive. I go, yeah, it's uh, about the collapse of the United States. She looks at me with this kind of blank stare, and I go, oh, and you're in it. She goes, really? She goes, well, what am I like in there? And I go, well, in the first book, you don't come across super nice. And I said, but in the other ones, you, you kind of redeem yourself. And she's just looking at me, and I go, and, you know, the editors kind of made you sound more mean, um, you know, for like effect. And she's still looking at me and, she, and in her mind, she's like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be just a terrible, terrible thing. And I'm like, hey, but I didn't use our real name. So, I mean, you know, and I'm like, I mean, nobody's going to read these books. And uh, that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been kind of an interesting experience with that whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 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 walking a tightrope. Um, whenever I'm out of town, uh, I use terminology with buddies like I have to employ uh, divorce, divorce avoidance protocol zero one. Yeah. Like, well, what's that? That's that's call your wife twice a day when you're not home, right? So, like, you were you were tap dancing around, uh, not employing uh, divorce avoidance protocols. Uh, <laughs> not that that's a, a real likelihood, but I mean, there are certain things men don't do and get away with well, generally writing a book and at least for a portion of it, making your wife the antagonist is not one of those things that you get away with. Yeah, and I don't think it's a, a common situation. I mean, there's the usual common stuff, you know, that troubles marriages, and I don't think writing a book, writing a yeah, book. is really one of them. Um, well, I, that's because most of us are not dumb enough <laughs> to write our wives into a book, and if we do, we make them out to be really great. But, I mean, you were trying to tell a story that led somewhere, Yeah, and there had to be resistance for that story to come out the way that it did. So, you know, I mean... I, I imagine editors would push certain elements one way or the other a little bit, but that was kind of necessary to tell the story. And let's face it, as men that want to be prepared, we can relate to this. Uh, yeah. My wife was nowhere near as resistant as yours, but, I mean, the reluctant spouse syndrome is something that I, I mean, I'd say half of the people that listen to the show have a reluctant spouse. And oddly enough, it's not always the wife. Yep, that's true. In fact, I've been blown away by how many women are like, yeah, we're prepping and my husband doesn't like it. Yeah. I'm like, really? Really? Like, does he read the newspaper or the internet newspapers now, I guess, or watch TV? Do you pay attention at all? Um, because, I mean, a lot of what we talk with prepping, it's not just if the United States economy collapses. It's like, what if there's a storm and you have no power for two weeks? Yep. I've never understood the... I don't want to face reality component of, of this to a degree. Yeah, and I think that um, 
it's it's especially bad that don't want to face reality thing where I live, very very liberal place, you know, Western Washington, uh, Seattle area, basically. And it's really hard out here, uh, surrounded by you know all these hipsters and all these you know goofballs, um, to like to to say um, I'm going to have some firewood. I'm going to have a generator. It's like what's wrong with you? I mean, you know, you're like some lunatic. I don't understand that at all. I mean, uppies buy firewood for like ten dollars a bundle all the time. <laughs> I I see them and I laugh at them and think, man, I should be selling firewood to yuppies because they're dumb. Uh, but I guess a little bundle to have one fire at Christmas time uh, is acceptable. But to have a stack of wood that you actually cut yourself, that's crazy redneck stuff. Exactly. It's that whole, I don't want to be a redneck. I don't want people to think I'm a redneck. I mean, that kind of thing, I think, inhibits a lot of males. Notice I didn't say men because I'm saying males. Yeah. And it inhibits a lot of males um, to do men things, uh, man things, I guess. Um, and so that is a problem. And I fell for that and I, I got out of it, thank goodness. And how I fell for it and how I got out of it, a lot of guys can relate to. Yeah, I mean, you actually said that even though you grew up with guns, mm-hmm. that when you, you came back around to the prepping concept and realized you need to protect yourself, like the first time you went to a gun store, you almost felt like you were doing something wrong. Yeah. That, that was all true, and, and as I describe it, it's like I drive up to this gun store, and it was like going to a pornography store. It was like, you know, only bad things happen in there. Only bad people go there. You don't want to be caught there because it's like badness, and there's going to be weird people inside. These are all the, the things, and so I go walk into this gun store, and everybody's nice. Everybody's cool. Um, there's a lot of people like me in there, and, and, and that, kind, that kind of realism because I actually live this and have these thoughts in my head, and then I write them down people can relate to that so yeah um that that was hard too and, and again i don't come from you know uh i didn't grow up in san francisco or something like that i mean i grew up in a very rural very remote rugged place tons of guns and fishing poles and pickups and all that other stuff and it was even hard for me to walk into a gun store 20 30 years later what does that tell you well what does that tell you about the guy that heard about guns all his life, kinda sorta of thought they'd be might be cool, but his his parents said they were bad, his teachers said they were bad, never held a gun in his life, and at thirty he decides he wants to get a concealed carry permit and get a gun. It's got I mean, it's something that I don't know, for me, since I grew up with guns, I've never existed for any moment of my adult life without possessing a gun. I have, I've possessed a gun that I can put my hands on and never broke that chain since I was 14. Um, it's hard for me to understand that, but I guess it's a reality for a lot of people that are like, man, this gun is dangerous, right? You know, I, it makes me think of the, uh, the, the, the evil assault rifle project where the guy has taken a loaded AR-15 and put it in a corner, and he's put a camera on it. It's <laughs> online somewhere. <laughs> And I think it's like evilblackrifle.com or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's basically they're waiting for this gun to do something evil. <laughs> and it's been there for like six years on this web feed. It just sits there. <laughs> and it's never done anything yet. But yet that mindset that the gun itself is an evil thing, it, it just seems to be a reality. And you look out, and there's like 35,000 or more people a year killed by cars. Yeah. So the car is much more evil than the assault rifle. You know, and that whole almost psychosis about people thinking that pieces of metal will jump up and do bad things. In book nine, and this is one of my favorite chapters in the whole the whole series, there's a, a character, Nancy Ringman, who is a very bad person, um, who describes she's got a pistol and she hates guns and she's about to do something with the pistol. She describes the mental process she goes through, just like even 
opening up the box because it's in a gift box and then like yeah. touching it and then like being afraid that she describes how they those things just blow up all the time and they just like start shooting people and and I write it like she really believes it and and yeah. we, when we read it we're like well that's crazy but you can actually appreciate that there are tons of people I talk to these people I know these people who really think this kind of stuff how else could I describe this this lunatic left wing stuff without like being around it all the time I mean I'm I'm like your I'm like your forward observer calling in, you know, the shots here. I mean, I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm around this. It's, it, it, it is hard to accept. I mean, it goes back to, like, you know, when Jamie Lee Curtis dropped the Mac-10 down the stairs in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Schwarzenegger movie and it, it tumbled and it shot all the bad guys and they all died. You'd you know that that was Hollywood effects, right? Well, no, that could happen. No, no, like, you know who Mythbusters are? They tried to make that happen, and they couldn't get it to go off once. Oh, no, it, I saw it. It's like, you're, it's like you're talking to somebody who is intellectually repressed on certain levels. Like, they want it to be true. Exactly right. You know, and I, I've, I've seen it even preppers right now with this whole Ebola thing. Oh, you're in Dallas, man. You're gonna die. Uh, you know, I'm really not, I'm not going to Presbyterian Hospital, and I'm not treating people with Ebola. And so I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm actually more likely, statistically and mathematically, to break my neck in the shower tonight than I am to contract Ebola. But I'm still going to take a shower so that I do not stink, right? And and it's like. I think some people in our world, they want some of these things to be more of a threat than they are to justify what they're doing. And I'm like, you need that yep. to justify being a responsible adult? Because I don't know about you, but I feel like making sure there's food for my family and I can protect my family and I'm not going to die because I'm you know, out of shape, that those are the things that like a responsible adult male would do. I I. I don't know why people feel this compulsion either to push it away or to justify. And I actually see, a, I guess it's because I deal with people that are at least doing something. I see a lot of this, un, this needless attempt to justify preparedness, if that makes sense. You know, one of the first things I heard you say, oh, it does make sense. One of the first things I heard you say, and one of the things that's formed my mindset on this, was you were telling the story, and this would have been like <laughs> July 2008 or something, back when you had 100 people downloading your thing. Sure. Um, and you said, listen, if you're this guy that really wants, I seem to remember it was an $1,100 1911 is the example yeah. you used. It might have been an $1,100 yeah. AR, but that sounds pretty inexpensive, but maybe it's 2008. Anyway, you want this expensive gun, and you're, you're saying to your wife, listen, there's going to be some zombies, and I need magazine capacity, and I need to be able to change a magazine quickly because there are going to be all these undead that are going to be trying to eat our brains, right? If you try to like, justify the fact that you want an $1,100 gun you know, with this like apocalypse thing, how about this? You want an $1,100 gun. If you can afford it, go ahead and get it. I mean, how about that? I mean, let's just be honest. That's the thing. Let's just be super honest and realistic and practical. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the biggest things, like we talk about how, you, how, do you, how do you get the spouse on board? If your spouse makes any attempt to meet you anywhere one millimeter in the direction that you're going and says something like, well, maybe we should get a few gallons of water. See, that's a great idea. I know three gallons of water is not going to change your life. I know that that's not enough. 
We all know that that's not enough. But I think there's so many people that say, oh, that's not enough. And, okay, what you've just done, if you just crapped on an attempt to understand what you're talking about. Because to the other person, well, a few gallons of water isn't radical, and that makes sense. And I think if you embrace those steps that the partner takes, what happens is they put that in place, and then they think about that. And they think, oh, wait a minute. This actually feels kind of good now. And, you know, the best thing that can happen after that is that the water goes off for like an hour. Yeah. If, if that spouse picks up that one gallon of water and cooks spaghetti with it, you know what? All of a sudden, all of this starts to make sense. Or, like, another way that I think that you can get the spouse on board is build your blackout kit. Your candles, your batteries, your flat. Don't tell them if they, you know, because it baffles me, but I've heard people say they don't even want to do that. Like, Oh, okay. <laughs> just build it. Sooner or later, the lights will go out. Grab it and just start turning lights on. And it's like, oh, well, that's a good thing. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, all this stuff makes sense. If you start out with, I need a really expensive gun and we need a pallet of MREs, it's not going to go well. You know, it's funny you mentioned MREs because here's an experience of what you're talking about that relates to MREs. And I don't have a pallet of MREs, but I have some. Power went out two, three days, and there was no way to cook. I mean, in western Washington, we have a lot of hydroelectric power. Everything's electric here, so, you know, everything's electric. So when electricity goes out, anyway. And it was kind of cold out. It was January and um, really wanted a hot meal. And, uh, well, I have those. They're called, you know, the heaters, right? And so my daughter, um, who's my little co-conspirator in all of this and, and you know, helps influence my wife, uh, I said to my daughter, I said, let's, let's go out to the garage, and uh, what do you want? You want ravioli or you want chicken fajitas or whatever it was? And she's like, oh, yeah, I want chicken fajitas. And I go, okay. And so we do it. We put it. I walk in. You know, I'm not making a big production, but I'm saying to my wife, I go, here you go. Um, you know. The setting is our daughter wants a warm meal and there's no electricity and I'm able to do it. And I said, by the way, it's like five bucks a piece, you know. I mean, that's what they were then. And uh, daughter had whatever it was, um, ravioli, and she said, here's the key. Hey, mommy, this tastes pretty good because it does. Yes. I mean, it's not. They're not terrible. I mean, I don't want no. to eat them for a month on end, but I mean, they're not terrible. So that was a way of. Um, taking uh, a situation and solving a problem and not gloating about it. It's that Easter Bunny approach of just not gloating and getting it done. Because that's what it's all about, Jack. It's about like having a warm meal. It's not about, I bought $10,000 worth of MREs and I told you so. That That's, that's not, not going to get you very far. I mean, if you want to, yeah, that's not good. You know, when I when I first got into this, the, the part that my wife was the most open to was more of the political side. Uh, my wife is what I call a reformed Republican. That's a libertarian. And uh, so we, when they did, yeah. when they first started the Tea Party stuff up, we went to this Tea Party thing, um, which was like the signaling that this really was going to just be co-opted by Republicans. And, you know, because we got, a, you know, a 45-minute lecture by a pastor about the sin of sodomy. And I'm like, I... Thought I was here to talk about taxes, but when we went to leave, we were at this big park in Arlington, Texas, and um, it was a huge gathering. It really got some momentum, so like cars were lined up, and it was going to be like an hour and a half to get out. So I pull out a bag, pull out the camp stove, set it on the tailgate of the truck, pull out some water, and made up some you know food. So we sat there and ate while everybody sat in line. She's like, you know, this is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's pretty cool because everybody else has no food, and there's like there was no concession stands or anything like that. So we were sitting there. I think we were eating like red beans and rice with andouille sausage, <laughs> you know. And, and and you know, looking around and going, can we crack a beer without upsetting John Law? Yeah, okay, cool. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I got a. I don't know where this came from, but I've got to tell you this. I've got a great way to be able to have a beer, and not be like, oh, that guy has a beer. I'm you get a Coke, you get a Coke can. Yeah, it only works for canned beer, unfortunately. You get a Coke can, you get a pair of, uh, you get a razor blade, and you cut the bottom and the top off of the the can, uh-huh. and then you slit it down the side, and it's a sleeve, oh, and yeah. you just put it around the beer can. Yeah, and it looks like Coke or Pepsi or Sprite or whatever. And there was a guy at a gun show recently was selling six of them for like fifteen bucks. Yeah. <laughs> And he was getting it. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a really cool idea, but I have a razor knife. Yeah. <laughs> I can do but that. It, it works perfectly. Yeah. So I don't know where that came from. That was a, <laughs> a brain cell that, that popped open there. But, I mean, how have how has this all gone? I mean, you mentioned you've sold thousands of books, yeah. tens of thousands. I, don't know what, I mean, what is it? I know you're not a big stats guy, but I mean, what is the overall? It's like eighty or eighty-five thousand, um, and that's maybe a little dated. I mean, that's that's a soft figure, but um, and that isn't any audiobooks. Um, will I, I think on October twenty-sixth, the launch date, probably be pretty close to a hundred thousand. Um, you know, either books or audiobooks, which is mind blowing. I mean, that's absolutely mind blowing. Um, so yeah, that's that's how it's been, and it's it's changed things in a couple ways. Um, one of them is. I'm not so crazy now in my wife's mind because there are about a hundred thousand other people who seem to agree with me, and that takes the crazy off of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. and that's been funny. Takes crazy off stuff too, man. <laughs> when, when checks show up, women are like, "Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool." <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's that's been the main thing. And she also sees something that I, I this sounds weird, but it's it's true. One of the other things she sees how much work this is. I'm not crying or complaining, but I mean. All the editing I do, all the writing I do, um, talking on podcasts. I mean, I, I spend half an hour to an hour a day probably um, emailing readers. They, they you know, ask me things, and I send them things and all that, which I love doing. Um, she sees that this isn't just some lark. This isn't just some hobby. I mean, this is like like a legit like enterprise. You know what I mean? And that's you know, and I think I think in this this world of like small publishers cuz you're not dealing with like Random House or something like that. That that authors who never could really get their message out before can now whether they do it with a small publisher like you or whether they do it with uh self-publishing platforms. You, you, if readers that actually become fans of the work can actually talk to the author because I've emailed Tom Clancy, and he's never emailed me back, <laughs> jackass. And Brad Thor won't email me back, and he came to my house. That is a hilarious story, but yes. So it's like, you know, uh, if I email Glenn Tate, I might actually be emailing somebody that's not really named Glenn Tate, but he'll send me an email back, you know, or he'll shout at me on Twitter or answer me on the forum or something like that. I mean, and I think the fact that, that people like yourself now can develop those relationships. And we've had other authors on the, on the show you know, the, um, that have that same kind of thing going on. I think that really builds a loyal fan base. It, it, it gets to a point where you can't answer everything, especially the guy that writes you. The, like, this is just for people that write Glenn or me or anybody else. If you write 47 paragraphs 
we're probably not going to read it. It's not that we don't care. It's that we can't. You know, but you, 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 you try to at least acknowledge, hey, that was a cool story, or hey, thanks for that, or if it is a question you can answer, give them an answer. Um, it builds a loyalty that I don't think the New York selling, you know, random house type author really can have anymore. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, the, the long emails, another one that I don't have time to answer. If you say, I'm thinking about a flashlight, a Surefire E2B or E2D, oh. what do you think? I'm like, I, I, those are the ones I just, I can't. I mean, I, I don't Please have. read the reviews on Amazon. That's what they're there for. And because it's, it's not even which one's better. It's which one's better for the person. Yeah. Right? So if, I, I saw people that, you know, were, were crapping all over a grill that I recommend people use, and they were saying it gets clogged up. And I'm like, well, if you don't want to clean a grill, you know, after five or six uses, this is probably not the one for you. But if you want a really badass grill that cooks well and you're willing to, like, clean your freaking grill, you know, uh, then then this is – and there is a legitimacy there because – the grill I'm talking about has these little holes that make these reflectors, and that's what gives you the great sear. And, a, you know, a typical grill, you don't have to clean as often. You can just hit it with a brush, and you're good. So that's a legitimate issue, but are you willing to clean your grill or not? You know? Um, so the flashlight, you know, do you want it small? Do you want it variable? Do you want, I, I don't know what the hell you want, dude. And I damn sure don't have time to read five paragraphs of your crap about why you're hemming and hawing one way and the other. And, again, it isn't that I don't care about the person. I just have to filter the time. You know, I mean, come on. Um, I love the people that are like, I want to tell you all about this, and I'm sorry for wasting your time, and I know your time is... And they spend two paragraphs telling you they know they shouldn't write a long email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? But I, I got to say that most of the ones that come in, this is probably true of you too, uh, for you too, um, they're, they're short, and they're like, when's the next book coming out? Or, yeah, these are yeah. great, thank you, um, this... It's got I, my wife's reading these now, and I think she's on board. I'll tell you that never gets old. I'll never. And I'll ever. tell you how you trick. I bet you this is true for you too. This is how you trick us into reading your long email. <laughs> Make your point in two sentences. Yep. Right. And I think you've probably learned this now as a writer because you're trying to publicize your work and all. That's how you get in the door. Start out with. I want, or this is what I'm doing, and make your point. And then sometimes you're interested, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I spent 20 minutes reading that email. <laughs> and I'm not upset about it. That was cool. <laughs> so you can trick us, you know. That's right. So um, what are your thoughts on the economics of the world right now? I mean, when you're looking around, because your whole storyline is about a, a, a partial economic collapse. Mm -hmm. What what areas of the, the the world are you seeing right now that that you know kind of lend credence to that could be an eventual reality? Um, internationally, um, the the Chinese currency and how yuan, renminbi, whatever it goes by a couple names, that Chinese currency is being used more and more to settle international trade in. As as you know, you've explained to people, you know, if you buy or sell anything internationally, you pretty much have to use U.S. dollars, creates artificial demand for U.S. dollars, which means they have an artificially high value. If people don't start buying and selling, let's say you're in Argentina and you want to buy oil, and in exchange you're going to sell some oranges uh, to whatever, Saudi Arabia, you got to take all that stuff, put it in dollars, and then buy and sell it in dollars, and then take it back into Argentinian or Saudi currency. Well, if if the Chinese and they're doing this a lot, I mean they should too. It's in their national interest. I can't I can't rip on them for trying to be, you know I don't blame anybody for saying 
Petrodollar. Yeah. And, that's the point. And so now it would be Argentina and Saudi Arabia would do this trade in Chinese currency. So that is something um, I've been watching. More and more countries uh, are are doing direct you know trades in yuan. The U- European Union recently announced this. Britain, uh, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, um, uh, obviously Russia, that kind of doesn't count. They have other reasons for doing that. Anyway, a good chunk of the world um, is, is, is buying and selling in Chinese currency, and that is the absolute death sentence for the value of the dollar. Uh, it wouldn't happen overnight, but it would, it would yeah. be pretty quick. So there's, it wouldn't be a death sentence, but what it would do is it would drastically reduce the power of the dollar in yeah. the world. I mean, that's the, and okay, if you want to be an exportation economy, that's great. Yeah. But we're not an exportation based economy. We're an importation based economy. And that's bad. When your dollar loses value against the currencies that you're buying from, your entire cost of life goes up. Um, people don't understand how, like, like well, you know, China right now, they have their, their currency pegged to the dollar, and they keep it weak against the dollar on purpose. dollar goes up a point, it, it follows it. It goes down, it follows it. It's, it's locked. It doesn't float freely on the market, and people are like, why would you crap on your own currency that way? Well, when you're exporting trillions of dollars of plastic bullshit yeah. to people spending dollars, it behooves you to keep your currency weak for that exportation model. But if you're the the company the country that's importing, so why do we buy the shit from China? Well, it's, it's cheap. cheap. Why is it cheap? Because their currency weak. If their currency just went up by half, so it came up to where like instead of like a nine to one, it went to four and a half to one. I'm not even sure where it is, but let's say it did that. The cost to us of every single item coming in this country would go up, and you have people like Donald Trump out there saying, "Well, that's what we should make them do." Yeah, and he's going to end up paying how much for his chips at his casinos then, when they're not being stamped in Shanghai? Yeah, and exactly. And you know that thing. I mean, how, how? Why would the Chinese keep their their currency low? Because that would mean that you know their currency was weak. Well, you know, you can get away with that when you've got you know millions of secret police keeping people in line. You can do that. We can't do that over here. And I could see you know twelve dollar gallons of gas and all that other stuff um, coming out of this, and think of all the ramifications that has well that's the international stuff more domestic stuff um it's it's just a matter of time before i mean all kinds of things i think wheels come off not one giant spectacular event um i think that the stock market I think there's a bubble um i mean you know today and i'm not one of these guys that looks at the dow today and, and like says this is reality but i'm up drudge this morning 450 point drop i, I want to say something like that there's been a lot of that the the economy, the political economy, in the sense of people not wanting to expand or do anything because of the let you know the uncertainties and the regulatory stuff and the Obamacare stuff, all those things, that's a big factor. I don't understand how how the American economy has been holding on like it has, and that's one thing I've been wrong about, and I'm I'm very open about that. The timing, I thought all these bad things would happen by now, and they haven't. So I'm I. I admit right off the bat, you know, don't listen to me on timing, right? I'm not selling gold. I'm not selling stocks. I'm not doing any of that. I don't know the timing. But there's all kinds of weaknesses here. And uh, it's going to happen with the, with the amount of debt, the, the $4 trillion a year that needs to be rolled over in bonds, right? I mean, these, these 60-day notes, these three-month treasury notes, that means 60 or 30 or three months, 60 days or three months. Somebody needs to renew those, which means keep buying them. Well, what if people 
don't want dollars as much anymore. Then they don't buy it, and then you know interest rates go up and all that other stuff. So there's a million ways that this can go poorly economically, domestically, and, and we're watching it internationally. And it's a matter of time. And then there's the political component, which is basically in 10 seconds, because I try not to be you know too political. When when the EBT cards are out and people aren't getting their stuff, people are going to go bananas because they're dependent and all that other stuff. Everybody already knows. And I see that as kind of the spark. That's what happens in the book. Um, so you got all these things going on internationally and nationally and all these big macroeconomic things. And then it comes down to my EBT card is turned off. I'm throwing a chair through a Walmart window and I'm getting some stuff. And that's what sparks things in my mind. Yeah, I'll tell you, my belief, honestly, is that the reason everybody's struggling with the timeline is they fail to recognize that it's it's happening right now. Yeah. It's very, very slow, slower, I think, than anybody, including when I originally started doing this show. I always said it would be gradual erosion, but the speed is so slow that it's... You know, it's like the, the the myth, you know, the myth of the frog. Because the frog in the water, that you turn the heat up. I'm telling you, I know reptiles and amphibians, and they thermoregulate. <laughs> uh, but, but the myth, anyway, is if you slowly turn it up, the frog doesn't know it. Um, and that's kind of what's going on here. But I look at it more like an event horizon. So if you were being sucked into a black hole, you'd be in trouble long before you were dead, and you wouldn't know it. And you would slowly roll into the event horizon. That's where I see us. Like the event horizon is lined with hundred dollar bills, and we're we're slowly going over this precipice, and it's a gradual erosion of the middle class to where it gets it, middle class doesn't even it's it's not just that people are falling out of the middle class. It's like being in the middle class just doesn't even mean what it used to be. But I think you're right in the end. The breaking point is when do people say, you know what, had a freaking enough. And I can't afford to live anymore, so I'm going to go out and start taking some shit. Yep. And we've already seen, like, if you want a window into what that looks like, look to Ferguson, Missouri. Yep. And, yeah, the police rolled in there, and whether you think they did it the right way or wrong or not, a lid was sort of kept on it. But if that's going on in 50 cities, you're not keeping a lid on it. There's a lot of resources that got pulled into there that Ferguson itself didn't have. And it, it goes to a very dark place very fast after that, in my opinion. Yeah, and human beings, uh, when, they're, when they're not controlling themselves, um, can be very bad, and their mobs take over and all that other stuff. Um, it happens everywhere in the world. This idea that we're America, so everything will be cool and awesome, and we're just – we are different in a lot of ways. I, I acknowledge that in some good ways, I'm going to be honest. I mean, rule of law, what's left of it, is a good thing, so – I'm not capping on America, but I am saying that we are human beings and we're going to act other ways in other places in the world when the electricity goes off and all these other things happen. People get hungry, their kids need to eat, and and bad things start happening. And this idea that that can't happen because it hasn't happened in sort of our lifetimes and, and that means it can never happen is really what is scary. It's what's going to get people killed. It's normalcy bias. And it explains, like, my wife's character. Nothing bad has ever happened to her. And that's good. I'm not being facetious I'm not, or sarcastic. I mean, that is awesome. Good for you. Um, but that isn't the way most of the world is, and this is so fragile. The, the analogy I use is I used to have a saltwater um, uh, aquarium. It was very cool. And I could have a sea anemone 
in my house. You think about that. Sea anemones living out in the ocean. But the reason I could have a sea anemone in my house was because the water temperature was perfect, the salinity was perfect, the oxygen level was perfect, uh, nitrogen levels, all these things were absolutely perfect. I'll tell you something. The power goes out for like four hours, and that sea anemone is dead because you know why? Sea anemones were not designed to live in Glen Tate's living room. That's why. And we're fragile like that. And all it takes is a little bump like that. And all these sea anemones that are flourishing in artificial conditions are going to get sucked into that filter. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I, I think that, that there's so many layers of that that are possible when you start thinking about it with people that are dependent on things like prescription medications uh, that, even if they're available, maybe can't afford them anymore. Right, because they're just too expensive, and and gee, you know, well, didn't Obamacare take care of that? Well, not really. I have one doctor that that comes on the air occasionally, a chiropractor, and you'll like this, Glenn. His 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 uh, his terminology for the Affordable Care Act is the Unaffordable Care Act. Yep. You know, where you'll never lose your insurance, but my wife is now on her second policy that's being taken away from her, not because the insurance company wants to, not because she doesn't like it, but because the, the the plan itself is no longer compliant with law even though the customer and the company are completely happy with it. Um, and instead of just, they, for some reason, they can't add shit to it, they have to take it away and say you have to get a new plan, which is about as pleasant as a root canal. Yep. You know? So I think there's a lot of potential for things like that uh, to continue to erode people's ability to, to function. Well, cool, man. We've, we've kicked out another hour, which is really easy to do whenever you're on. Um, can you r tell people again how they can get your books? I mean, you can get them on Audible. You can get them on Amazon. Uh, is it probably best to go to your website and decide from there? Yeah, I mean, you can go to my website, 299days.com, 299days.com, and get a flavor and see kind of what's going on. Probably the easiest way to get a hold of the books is on Amazon and just type in 299days. And remember, there are 10 books. Or there will be on October 26th. There are nine now. And so, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're, you're getting, like, book number one, right, to start with. Um, and then Audible, you can just type in 299. I've, I've been doing this. You just type in the numbers 299, and it fills it in because there aren't any others with that. And uh, that's the best way to get the audiobooks. You can get the audiobooks on Amazon. You can get the audiobooks, and this is once they launch on October 26th, on iTunes, uh, which is cool. You can listen to them on an iPad or a an iPhone. Um, there are probably other ways you can listen to this that I don't know about because, once again, I don't listen to audiobooks because I don't have time. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, just if you if you just Google uh, 299 days, uh, or especially put 299 in Amazon or Audible or iTunes, um, it'll it'll come up on October 26th uh, and thereafter for the audiobooks. Yeah, it's easy, just one number. Very cool, man, and. Uh Again, folks, you can you can pre-order the audiobooks right now, and they are available starting on. Well, uh, they're August sixth. I mean, they're they're, they're going to be they're released. Here. Yeah. Oh, they're going to be released on October twenty-sixth. Yeah, they October twenty-sixth. They go live at midnight on October twenty-sixth, which is a Sunday. So get yours down. I think for a lot of people that don't have time to really sit down and read. Uh, and that's probably a lot of people in this audience, which is why they like to listen to podcasts. Yeah. This might be a better option because I know that I'm not on the road anymore now, but when I was on the road, man, I'm like, I don't have time to read, but I, I have all this butt time and uh, in the seat, you know, driving down the road. So uh, I think this is going to 
maybe open up an entirely new uh, readership for you. And I'd like to thank you for something. It doesn't happen every other day or anything, but every once in a while I get an email from someone that goes like this. So I was reading this book called 299 Days with this guy, Glenn Tate. I don't know if you know who he is, but he mentioned your podcast in there, and I checked to see if you're real, and you are. And so so that's awesome that I pick up. The, I had one email, like, you could almost hear that voice. That's yeah, awesome. Glenn's selling books to California hippies. That's cool, man. Um, so that's awesome that you did include us in the book, and uh, me in particular. And uh, thanks for being on the air with us again today, dude. Oh, my pleasure. Always a good time, Jack. Always a good time. But folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirgo today along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. Or what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution